Assalamu alaikum, everybody, and welcome back. This is our second in our series of Sira Talks. Inshallah, I hope, I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows it to continue and allows us to have barakah in the time that we spend here together. So just as a quick recap, I'm just going to go over very quickly, just as a summary of what we did in last time's session. So we covered really some very basic points. We covered um, the concept of what actually is Sira. So we talked about how it's the, generally it can be biography of anybody, but now um, it's taken to be, whenever anybody says Sira, they mean the biography, the life and times of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Then we covered why is it important for us to even read about it, to learn about it. And we discussed and we said that, well, without knowing the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, our Quran that we read, we can't really figure out the context of it until we actually understand his life, because obviously the Quran was revealed in 23 years of the Prophet Muhammad's life, and all the events that took place at the time are interwoven with the ayahs that we read in the Quran. So for us to actually understand Quran, we need to understand the context of these ayahs. And the only way we can understand context is to know about the life of the Prophet Muhammad And also we, we said that, well, without knowing about our role model, the Prophet Muhammad we understand is the role model for every human being, uh, for us as Muslims, definitely. So for us to know how he lived explains to us how we should live as Muslims. And then what else did we cover? Well, we went through what was the situation at the time like for the uh, people who lived there in pre-Islamic Arabia. We talked about the history of the Arab. We talked about the, the family tree, if you like, not in great detail, detail, but we were going back to talking about Ibrahim salam, and Ismail. We talked about the geography of the Arabian Peninsula. So we said that it is a peninsula, it's surrounded by water, and its geographical situation, because the north of it is just desert that you'd have to cross through to get there, the geographical situation meant that they were really cut off from other people's cultures, for other, from other influences, other political influences, and other religious influences as well. We talked about the political status, we talked about the social status, we went into what was it like to be a woman at that time in pre-Islamic Arabia. Um, great if you're really rich, terrible if you weren't. And then we went into kind of the moral moral life. What was it, what was it like? Went into the economical situation. Most of what we talked about was quite desperate. It was quite um, difficult to think of living at that time. You wouldn't want to have lived at that time, really, from what we heard. But then we moved on and we said, but you know what? It wasn't all doom and gloom. There were some positives. We spoke about how the Arab were still are very hospitable people. They are people, were people of honor, and they had an amazing memory. They were illiterate. Majority of them were illiterate. This was, I think, some a bit new to some people. They didn't realize that actually the majority of that society was illiterate. We said that at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, when uh, his prophethood um, was, was given to him, there were barely 20 people in the whole of Mecca that could read and write. So um, to be illiterate was just the norm. But because of that, they had 
such amazing memories. They they almost didn't need, they didn't see the need to be able to read and write because they just remembered everything. And all of these things that we spoke about, all of them were important as to why, as for us to understand why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would send the last of all the prophets to these people. So that's where we're picking up today. So in this second series, in the second part of the series, we're going to have a look at what was the religion of pre-Islamic Arabia like? And, and you can understand this is most probably the most directly connected to the study of the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because we know that the key responsibility that the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa had was we are told in the Quran over and over again that he was sent as a warner. So not to threaten people, but not to frighten them. But, you know, when you warn somebody, okay, so if you warn somebody in your family, maybe you're warning your child, don't go close to that. It's hot. You know, you're going to burn yourself. You're not doing that because you want to frighten them. You're not doing that because you want to threaten them. You're doing that actually because you love them. You don't want them to get hurt. You, you can see that there's this danger in front of them. And, you know, it's a realistic danger. They, they could hurt themselves if they go too close to that fire. And that is exactly how the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, approached his job, his task given him, given to him by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to warn people. He did it with love. He did it with sincerity. Um, because these people we know had not had any guidance or they weren't really correctly spiritually aware for a very long time. When I say for a very long time, because worshipping one God, worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone had come to the Arab before that. It wasn't absolutely new. It had come before years and generations and, you know, years ago, because we know in the Quran that the prophets that were Arab, that were sent to Arab tribes. We had Hud, alayhi salam, that was sent to the Ad people. We had Salih, alayhi salam, who was sent to the Thamud. Now, this is recounted to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran. And obviously then, we, we know also that Ibrahim, alayhi salam, came to Mecca. And we, we touched on that last time. And then he had brought his baby boy, Ismail alayhi salam, and Ismail alayhi salam had grown up there. So the, the concept of Tawheed, of worshipping only one God, had come to this area. But after a time, idol worship became introduced. It was introduced to these people. And you could think to yourself, well, how do you convince somebody who believes in one God and has a has a history of understanding that there is only one God, how do you convince them to change their way and to start worshipping idols? And with most things, in most scenarios, in any scenario actually, when you make a change for yourself or for somebody else, you do it gradually. And that's that's really how this happened. So again, we we kind of apologized last time, not really going to apologize, but there are going to be a fair few names in this. So by all means, listen to the recording again if you want to understand who's who, um, take notes, however it is. But Sira, obviously biography is going to be, there are going to be names that come up. I can't just say person A, person B, it will get very confusing. So 
there was a leader of the people in Mecca. His name was Amr, Amr bin Luhay. Okay, so that was his name. He was an important person in the society. He was a leader, as we said, but he also used to travel on business and he was to travel to different places. And he traveled up north to the area known as Sham. And we spoke about this, Bilad al-Sham, we even hear it now. Um, and it, it incorporates not just Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. The, so there's an area to the north, if you like, of the Arabian Peninsula. So he traveled there. And when he went there, he saw a tribe of people. Um, I'll try and get my tongue around this. is the Amalekites. I think this name is actually even in the Bible. And he saw them and they were very, well, they were very impressive people. They were tall, strong. They, um, they seemed to be very powerful, very successful. And he saw that they were worshipping idols. And he said to them, you know, what, what, are, these, what are these things that you're worshipping? Remember, he, he had come from a society that up until this point was only worshipping one God. So this was something new to him. And, and they said to him, they explained and said, you know, these are our idols. We worship them and we ask them for good. And normally you would have thought to yourself, well, who's going to be convinced by that? But there's three important things to remember in this situation. The people that Amr bin Luhay had seen worshipping idols, they weren't weak people. They weren't unimportant people in their area. They were strong. They had a powerful civilization of their own. And so they were very impressive. And when you see an impressive society, even if they're doing something that is unfamiliar to you, you start to think, well, maybe everything that they're doing is right. And maybe everything that they're doing is the reason for their strength. So Amr said to them, well, could I take one of your idols? I think this is a really good idea. You know, I could take one back to my people and, and they, could, they could worship it as well. And they said, yeah, here you go. And they gave him an idol by the name of Hubal. Uh, so this actually comes up because this name is mentioned in Quran. So he brought Hubal back to his people and he said, you know, I went and I saw these people, they're amazing and they have such success. And they said, we have our success because we worship these idols. And I think that's a good idea. I think we should do that too. So his people were influenced by him. He was a leader of his people. He had his prestige in society and he's telling them this is a good thing. And coupled with the fact that it had been years since they had received any profits from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It had been almost, up at this point, it almost been about 2000 years since Ibrahim -Islam and Ismail had come to the area. So people weren't very aware of their religion. They were doing stuff, maybe you know their parents had told them to do this. They hadn't really, really taken it into their own hearts. So now this was quite an easy way of shaitan to affect them. Their leader is telling them, worship idols, you will be prestigious, you will be important. I think it's a good thing. And so they did. And over time, more and more idols were brought into Mecca and worshiped. And so much so that we know that when the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, when he went, and this is obviously fast forwarding many, many episodes, into this series later, when he went and he conquered Mecca, there were 360 idols in 
and around the Kaaba because they brought them to the Kaaba. They brought the idols to the Kaaba. The Kaaba was still an important place for them. A bit like sort of a town square, if you like. That's where everyone would come, everyone would meet. That was the important place to be. Anything that was happening, the news was there. So they would bring their idols to the Kaaba. So there were over 360 idols in and around the Kaaba. So you can see that paganism, idol worship, whichever word you use, it had become the main form of religion, the main form of spirituality, of worship in that region, in this time of pre-Islamic Arabia. And this is how it happened. So we just went through that, that situation of how that happened. Was that the only religion at the time? No, actually, there was, there were little pockets of Christianity, there were little pockets of Judaism, but not really anything that would have made an influence. It was a minimal presence. This is because we, and we spoke about this last time when we, we spoke about the geography of the area, that the neighboring regions around the peninsula, the Hijaz, the area of Arabia, they were Christian, but you know this hadn't influenced the main area around in, in Arabia. So we know that the people in Mecca, in Arabia, they actually still believed in Allah. They believed in him to be like the top God. Almost think about it like a hierarchy system. So you've got like a pyramid and at the top, they would have Allah because they understood that he was the supreme God. But then they also had lower gods, if you like, idols, which they took as intermediaries so that they felt that maybe they weren't good enough and they couldn't approach the supreme Allah. So what they should do is actually they should ask these in-between gods who were better than them and maybe had a better link with Allah. Um, and they would ask them for goodness, well, to ask Allah. And then slowly it just became asking them for goodness. And they would have so many different idols because the, each idol could, they felt, help them with a different area in their life. So if they wanted help with their business, they would worship one god if they wanted i don't know if they wanted a son um because they kept having daughters and we'll find out later on that that was a bit of a problem um then they would speak or they would worship another idol they even in that whole kind of picture of idols it wasn't just all the idols were on a level plane you had some really important idols that they considered were more important and they would even build like little mini temples for them and almost like sort of a if, if it wasn't near Mecca, if it was outside of Mecca, they would have a temple for this um, idol, a temple for the other idol. And they would even, they would even make tawaf. They would even go round this little idol that they'd made um, as a form of worship. So you can see that it's a real mishmash of things from Islam, you know, the tawaf around the Kaaba, but then they're making tawaf to an idol and they've made a temple for the idol. They didn't just have them in, they didn't have just the, the idols in the Kaaba or in kind of te temples that they'd made for them. They actually had like mini idols that they'd keep in their homes and they would be able to worship them in their homes. So you can see that this idea of paganism, of idol worship, it literally had spread into the whole of their life. And not just that. So when you, when you have these different beliefs, then you also get other different beliefs. There were superstitions. They would believe in evil omens. They would put spiritual importance on things that actually had absolutely no basis. So, you know, when 
even now, you, you know, think about people who are superstitious, there's no real basis for that belief. It's just, you know, maybe passed down from word of mouth or, or, you know, an accident happened to one person. So they think, oh, we'll never do that again because that will happen to everybody. So they were, they would see kind of significance spiritually in all sorts of things. One of the things that they did actually was that they would allot, because they, they're in Arabia, they had camels, they had other animals as well, but they would, they would allot certain camels and say, right, this camel is sacred. So the milk that you get from that camel, no one's allowed to drink that milk. That is sacred milk and you can only give it to the idols. Um, and they would have different animals just for their, for their idols. No one else could touch these animals. Not just that, they would also they would also do things like divination, which is where they would do certain things to make decisions. Now we know we have the blessing of istikhara, the dua of asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for guidance. But at the time, at that time, what they would do is they did a couple of things. They would shoot arrows and they would say to themselves, right, if that arrow goes to the right, then I will do that thing or I won't do that thing. If that arrow, when I shoot it, goes a bit to the left, then the gods are telling me that I should, I don't know, stay away from, you know, this transaction, whatever I'm doing. They also did the same thing by, they would get birds, they would release them and they would see which way they flew. If they flew to the right, it meant something. If it flew to the left, it meant something. So you had all these different ideas. And we said that, okay, paganism was the main religion if you like at that time there was christianity we said there was judaism but even these had been altered even at that time they had been altered for example with christianity you had the introduction of trinity so now no longer was this worshiping allah alone in judaism it had been altered by the rabbis the the rabbis had started to make the laws they said no 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 you can't read the Torah, we will tell you exactly what the laws say. And then that just became open to corruption. So then they started making laws that were very good for them. The paganism, the idol worship, and we said how that came into Mecca. And we said, well, how, how did they actually feel okay about this? How did they feel okay that it was all right, that they believed in a supreme Allah, but yet they worshipped idols. What made it okay to them? Well, they actually sort of said to themselves, well, yes, we know we did believe in one God. They knew about Ibrahim, salam, but they had told themselves that the idols were helping them in their worship of Allah. But then, like I said, in all intents and purposes, they actually disconnected themselves from Allah and then just started worshipping the idols. So paganism, was there in every aspect of their lives. And like I said, when, when that happens, when you start putting spiritual importance to things that have no spiritual importance, then you will get charlatans. You will get people who will come and say, we know what the gods want for you. Pay us this much money and we will tell you what you need to do. So you had soothsayers that would bless you on behalf of the gods because you'd bless them by putting money in their hand. Some of them were even hooked up to star worship. Not that many did that, but there was this understanding of um, astrology. Um, and okay, so we, we understand that there was all this paganism, but like I said, they, there were some elements of Islam 
that had still stayed, or I wouldn't say Islam, some elements of monotheism, of worshipping Allah alone. And they, they knew that they answered ultimately to Allah, but they worshipped the idols. So they still had Allah in the picture, let's say. They knew that the Kaaba was a holy place. They didn't, you know, they didn't treat it like it was just a rubbish dump or something. They, they knew it was a special place. They even had Hajj. They went to Mina. They went to Arafah. But all of this was all altered, all kind of twisted around. Um, one of the things that they did was that we know that if you came to Hajj, if you came to the pilgrimage, and you were not from the Quraysh, you were not from the, the tribe of the Quraysh, then you were considered to be unclean because only the Quraysh were clean. Um, and so you had to actually, when you made, when you went on Hajj and you made the Tawaf of the Kaaba, you had to wear clothes that were of the Quraysh people, Quraishi clothes. And so obviously you can see if you need to wear somebody else's clothes, this is a great opportunity to make money. So yes, the Quraysh would charge them to borrow their clothes, hire their clothes, so they could put on the clothes and do the rites of Hajj. So what happened if you were too poor to afford the clothes? Yes, you guessed it, you had to wear nothing. So you, you wore nothing and you did your tawaf. Um, also the tawaf that they did, we know that when a person goes on Umrah or Hajj and, and does their tawaf, uh, goes around the Kaaba, then they're making dua, they're remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they made tawaf, but what they actually did was they would whistle, they would clap. So there was there was nothing really in it. They were they were doing the the they had the connection to the action, but the whole thing was just all pretty messed up. Even in Arafah, they would stand there and they felt that with the the sins that they had gathered had somehow leached themselves into their clothes, so they wouldn't wear any clothes. They would stand in front of Allah with no clothes on because they felt that was the way that they should stand there praying. So this is, this is some of the things that were happening at the time. And even though we've said that, you know, they used to worship idols, what role really did religion play in their lives? Was it important? No, not really. It was actually just pretty symbolic. Sometimes they would, they had the concept of sacred months. Now we know about the sacred months. We know that there's four sacred months out of the 12 that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has assigned. They had those sacred months too. And they knew that it was sacred in the sense that they weren't allowed to do any fighting in that time. And we know that we spoke about this last time. It was tribal or it was tribal mentality, a bit like gang man mentality. So there was a lot of fighting that was going on. Um, so what they would actually say is, oh, you know, we're in this battle, we're nearly going to win this war against this other tribe, but this month, this holy month is going to start tomorrow and we'll have to stop fighting. So what we'll do is we'll actually change the months around. We'll bring them the next month that isn't sacred and we'll say, well, it's that one now so we can carry on fighting. So you can see that they were really messing things up. Um, and we spoke about one one of the things that I found out when I was researching this, and I know this just sounds really strange, but uh, you know, I said they had the concept of um, they would have a, they would have a camel, and the milk that camel was sacred, so the milk of that camel was sacred, and if uh, no one else was allowed to touch this milk, it was for the idols alone. So what they would do, for example, they would maybe carve uh, an idol, 
uh, out of wood or stone. And then they would take the sacred milk and they would pour it onto the idol as an offering. And then they would leave because then they had their own houses. And we're told that at night, like the dogs would come, they would lick the milk, they would drink the milk that was left, and then they would relieve themselves over the idol. So, and, and then there's other things like one tribe once, they made um, an idol out of like sweets, like cake. They would kind of like pack it all together. They would make an idol and then they would worship it. And we're told that at one point there was a drought and food was quite scarce. So the food was so scarce that they actually ate the idol. And for us, we can maybe sit there and laugh, but this was real to them. This was, this was part of how they lived. And you might think to yourself, these people really had no idea. They really didn't have a clue. But you know what? It actually shows one thing. It shows that, yes, it shows how bad their spiritual state was. And it kind of makes us think, wow, how did the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, manage to change the way the society lived, how they thought, what they did, obviously, by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But one of the other things that it shows is it shows that these people actually did feel a need for spirituality in their lives. Like I say, if, you know, if they were, if they were on a journey and they couldn't, they didn't have an idol with them. They'd like gather some stones, mud, pack it all together, pour some milk on it, you know, so that it could kind of form, form a shape and then they'd worship it. And like I say, it sounds ridiculous to us, but it shows that they really still felt that they needed to worship um, because actually a worse thing would have been if they had no inclination for any spiritual connection at all. So they didn't feel any need to pray and they didn't feel, you know, that they had, that they needed anything to worship because then that means that their arrogance would have reached to a, almost a level that you can never come back from. They still had this feeling inside them that they needed to have a spiritual connection. Yes, okay, to an idol made out of cake, but still they felt that they needed a spiritual connection. So they were desperate in a way, if you like, they were looking for that connection. And sometimes I think to myself, it's not actually that dissimilar to people when they convert to Islam. For some people, I know myself, I looked at different religions when I was trying to find the truth. I knew there must be a truth. And I looked at different religions and I went from, I looked at Christianity, looked at Judaism, I looked at Hinduism, Sikhism. Um, you know, you, you do look, you find that somebody who's searching for the truth, sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides them straight to Islam. And they find that as the first thing that they've looked for, alhamdulillah. But for other people, it is literally a search and they will go from one to another. And that's really how these people were, they were still searching. They didn't, you know, they, they didn't feel that they needed no connection with their spiritual selves. Um, so we've talked about that there was paganism as the main form of worship. We said that there was some Christianity, there was some Judaism, 
but neither of those really, both, both of those had been altered. They weren't in their true forms. But there was actually a tiny minority, a few, just a few individuals, not more than say like 15, 16 people around that number, that actually they still did follow the teachings of just worshipping one God. I'm not talking about the worshipping one God at the head and the idols in between. No, they didn't worship idols at all. So these people were called the Honefer. Now, that is the plural of the word Hanif. You might have heard that name because sometimes it's given as a name to somebody. Um, and somebody who is Hanif means they stick to the middle part, like they stay very centered in, so they don't deviate to the right, they don't deviate to the left. So they're following, and this was actually taken to be following the path of Ibrahim salam. So someone who is constantly focused on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's a description of Ibrahim salam in the Quran. Uh, we know that he was Hanif, he was somebody who was completely focused on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so there were a few people, like I say, not that many, but there were a few at the time who had stuck to this idea. And these people really were just like the last glimpse of Tawheed, of worshipping Allah alone, that really was present in the world at that time. Because even Christianity, Judaism, they'd all started to be altered. So these people were the, like, the last ones left standing. And so we're going to have a look at some of these because they're really very interesting. Um, and the first one, the first one to me actually is the most interesting. I think it's maybe because we know a little bit more about him. So here we go, ladies, another name, Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail. Now he, this is before prophethood. So we, remember, we're still talking pre-Islamic Arabia, what the religion was at this time. This is before prophethood but not before the birth of the Prophet Muhammad So the Prophet Muhammad was alive, but yet we know obviously that he received his prophethood at the age of 40. So this is before that first revelation. So this man, this man Zaid bin Nufail, he would sit by the Kaaba. And remember the Kaaba was important. It was like the central focal point of Mecca. And he would sit there by the Kaaba and he would call out to the Quraysh, and they just thought, this man is just an eccentric old man. And they just humoured him. They didn't really, they weren't horrible to him, but they really didn't think uh, he was important at all. So he would actually say to them, none of you is truly on the religion of Ibrahim except myself. So he was basically telling them, what are you doing? Why are you worshipping these idols? And then he would make a dua and he would say, oh Allah, if I knew how you wanted me to worship you, I would do it, but I don't know. And believe me, I'm sure there must be so many people who have converted to Islam. Maybe they don't use the word Allah, they use the word God. And they say, oh God, please, I just want to worship you the way you want me to worship you. So this was that kind of man. He truly just wanted to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the way Allah wanted him to worship him. And then he would actually go further and he would prostrate. He would make sujood near the Kaaba, facing the Kaaba, he would make sujood. So you can see there are some remnants, some few little bits left of how Ibrahim used to worship. And this man, Zaid, 
So he was very spiritually aware. He knew that there was only one Allah. He absolutely refused to believe in the idols. He was one of the Hunafa, he was Hanif. And because he was so kind of spiritually connected and spiritually alive, he was socially very aware as well. And this is something that you should see. I say you should see because sadly it doesn't always happen in communities where somebody who really is, who understands who Allah is, who understands who they are um, as the servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does as much good as they can for the sake of Allah. We understand that concept. Um, and so he would he would do some amazing things. We spoke very briefly just earlier that, you know, we said when when you wanted to when you wanted to have a son, you would pray to a particular idol because you didn't really want daughters. They were bad news uh, in that society. And they actually went as far as if their firstborn was a baby girl. Um, then they would bury this little baby alive as an offering to the gods. So the gods would give them a boy next time. And when Zaid found out that this was happening, if he knew that this was going to happen, he would go to that person. He would go to that man and say, no, don't kill them. Give that baby to me. And then he'd even go further and say, you know what? In time, if, if, if you feel some love in your heart, for this little baby, this little baby girl, your baby girl, then absolutely you you can take her back. But if you don't want to have anything to do with her, then it's fine. She's never going to bother you. You might as well think she's dead, but I will look after it, after her. Don't kill her. Um, so you can see that he he was putting into practice his understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and doing good for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And actually, who wouldn't do that? Who wants to see? anybody bury anything alive um and then another thing he would do like i say he absolutely refused to have anything to do with the idols he didn't believe in them at all um and he would go so far as to say don't don't give me any food that you've sacrificed to the gods he would say i don't want to eat anything which you sacrificed to your idols and i will only eat from that which is sacrificed in the name of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then he would say to them, you know, this goat that you're going to cook up and eat, the one that, you know, the one that you're going to kill and eat and sacrificing to the gods. Allah created that goat. He created, he's the one who sent down the rain so that you could have um, fodder to give to your animals. He's the one you should be worshipping. Now, Zaid, we know, passed away before prophethood, before the Prophet Muhammad received that first revelation. but where there is a, a narration, a hadith. We spoke about what hadith were in the last episode. There's a hadith where the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, Zaid will be resurrected on the day of judgment as an ummah by himself, literally as the only ummah that existed between Isa and then the Prophet Muhammad, because we know that there were no prophets between Isa salam and the Prophet Muhammad salam, and there was about 500 years in between the two. But the Prophet Muhammad salam said that this man was so on the truth that on the day of judgment, he will actually be raised as if he was a, a believing nation all by himself. And also in another hadith, when the Prophet Muhammad salam went on, and this is going into the future that we will talk about, inshallah, one day, when he went on the Isra in the Mi'raj, where he went to Jerusalem and then up into the heavens, 
the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, said, I entered Jannah, I entered paradise, and I saw two massive trees. And the, the word in Arabic, I mean, massive, humongous, the, the biggest tree I know that is in the world, I think, is a Californian redwood. I think that's like the biggest tree I've seen. I've seen one somewhere, and I think it, it made me dizzy just trying to see the top of it. But so massive, these two trees, and they're reserved just for Zaid, just like to relax and chill out underneath the tree, because he was so focused on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He truly was Hanif. So the second person that we're going to mention, who was one of the Hanafa, one of the ones who was focused just on worshipping Allah alone and no idols, we will come back to this man as well later. His name was Awaraka bin Nawfal. And some of you might have heard that name before, but if you haven't, don't worry, because we will be speaking more about him. At the moment, what we'll say is he was actually a traveling companion with Zaid. So Zaid and himself, they would travel all over Arabia trying to find the truth because they knew what they saw their people doing, worshipping idols, was not the truth. So they would travel around, see if they could find another way that was the truth of how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But Zaid, when he came across Christians and, and we came across Christianity and Judaism, that didn't sit right with him. He said, you know what? No, I'm just going to try and stick to the religion of Ibrahim alayhi salam. Whereas Waraka, he actually met, met some monks, but they were actually practicing what you would call kind of old Christianity. So before Trinity, they were practicing the, the, um, the true monotheistic worshipping of one God. And they had actually separated themselves out from the rest of the community because the community wasn't happy with them. They weren't happy with the, the other Christian Trinity community. And so he actually became Christian, but monotheistic, yes? Yeah? So he only believed in one God, but only believed in Allah alone. And he actually, he was a very educated man and he translated the Injil, what now we call as the Bible, but the gospel. He translated the Injil from the, um, so for, into Arabic. He trans obviously by hand, he translated this into Arabic and then he would take it and he would try and teach people to change them from their pagan ways. Why was why why are we going to speak about him again in the future? Well, he was the cousin of Khadija. May Allah be pleased with her, the wife of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And we'll see later that he plays a very important part when the first revelation comes down. Okay, so he was one of those individuals that absolutely refused to believe in idols and would only worship one God. So he was Hanif, he was from the Hunafa. There's another um, individual that I'll mention. He was actually, that's um, a very long name, so I will say it, it's Qus bin Sa'idah al-Iyadi. Now, why was he important? Well, because, um, this is again before prophethood. We mentioned last time that one of the one of the things that the Arabs really put a lot of value into was um, was poetry because they were masters of language, absolute masters of language, and the pinnacle of linguistics was poetry. So they would have massive poetry fairs, um, and a bit like how you'd think of like a, a major carnival or, you know, a major fair somewhere. And 
he would go to this poetry fair and he would say, he would say to them, oh people, everyone who dies has perished, but everything will come back later. What he meant by that was that everything you do in this life has a consequence for you in the next. So don't just think that you can live how you want because you will have to take account of everything that you've done in this life. And he will say, I take an oath. There is for Allah a deen, a way, a way of worshiping him. And that, that way is much more pleasing to Allah than what you're doing. So he definitely lived knowing that there was only one Allah. And we will mention one more. This man's name actually comes up in uh, later on in the seerah as well. The Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi comes up in hadith. His name was Labid bin Rabi'a al-Amiri. I hope I said that right. Um, and he was, again, he was a great poet. So he was very learned. He was very respected because he was a poet. And the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi actually said about him that some of the truest words a poet spoke were the words of Labid. Because what he would say, and this is something actually, the concept of what he says is actually in the Quran. He would say, pay attention. He would call to people and he would say, pay attention. Each and every single thing other than Allah has no foundation. Um, in other words, everything will perish. Everything will go except Allah will remain. And this is there. We know this is this is effectively there in Surah Al-Rahman, where Allah says that everything will perish except for him, for his face. That will be the, like, everything in creation will come to an end. So he knew that the only permanent one is Allah and that anything that exists in creation only exists because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows it. Now he actually accepted Islam. So he was still alive at the advent of the first revelation and he accepted Islam and actually he lived for years. He lived up until he was about 150 years old. He actually died at the time when Uthman, may Allah be pleased with him, was the Khalifa. So he lived all through the prophethood of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So he's counted as one of the companions. So Alhamdulillah, he was, he was on the right way beforehand and then he understood and saw the right way and accepted the right way, um, you know, when, when he found it. There was, the, it didn't mean that everybody who was Hanif actually accepted Islam when it came to them. Sadly, there was, we, I mean, when I was doing this research, I found out about one man um, and he actually was a Christian and he would write poetry. Like I say, poetry was, was the thing then. If you were learned um, and you weren't, looking at scripture, like Waraka was, then you were, you were forming, you know, immense kind of volumes of poetry or just, you know, you were not written poetry because not many of them could read and write, but um, you were actually creating poetry on the spot. And he used to, he used to speak about there only being one God, this man, um, I'll give you his name, Umayya bin Abi As-Salud. So he would actually, in his poetry, he would speak about that there was only one God. He would say that you will be resurrected on the day of judgment. Now, this was actually, the Arabs didn't believe that at all. They, they just thought, you live, you die, that's it. They didn't believe in resurrection. So it was pretty a radical idea for pre-Islamic Arabia. And he did actually live 
till prophethood. But sadly, he didn't accept Islam because his arrogance got in the way. He just thought, you know what, I've been around longer than you. I'm older, I'm better, I'm, you know, my poetry is amazing. Um, and he didn't accept Islam. And actually, some scholars say that there's an ayah in the Quran that speaks about him where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in uh, the seventh surah of the Quran in the 175th ayah where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, relate to them the story of the man. We gave him our signs. He retreated from it. In other words, he backed away from that guidance and he followed shaitan and became those who lived a life of disillusion. So some people say that this actually refers to this man who, you know, was on, was a Hanif. He only believed in Allah. And then the, the message of Islam came to him and he refused to believe in it. So these were some of those last glimmers of hope that were left in pre-Islamic Arabia. We can see that some of them actually went on and accepted and became Muslim. And some in their arrogance sadly didn't. So what we'll do is we'll end it there. And next time we'll go into the life, not the life, but the, the family of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. So are there any questions that anyone would like to add? Take yourself off mute and just let me know if you wanted to ask anything or maybe even just add something. <laughs>